0: You're listening to TIP.
1: I sold it after three years. I thought I was getting an amazing, you know, we ran it for maybe 8000 a door or something. I sold it for 36000 a door. I thought it was like this, the home run of the century.
2: In this week's episode, I talk with Eric Barvin about investing in expensive, frothy markets, how to find hidden value in real estate, current market conditions, and much, much more. Eric Barvin is the founder, chairman, and CEO of Barvin, a real estate investment firm. Eric received a Bachelor of Arts degree in International Studies and Economics from Emory University. After graduating in 2007, he began his career as a real estate analyst in mortgage banking. In 2009, Eric founded Barvin Group LLC to acquire multifamily communities. Today, Barvin owns and develops communities in Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, and San Antonio. Eric is a member of the National Multifamily Housing Council, Houston Apartment Association, and the Urban Land Institute. Eric and his family currently live in Houston, Texas. And now, without further delay, let's get right into this week's episode with Eric Barvin.
0: You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey,
2: everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I welcome in Eric Barvin. Eric, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Robert. Appreciate you having me today.
2: We are in an interesting time where some people are speculating or even worried that we're heading for a time in the real estate market that we experienced in 2007 and 2008. You worked at a firm called Catmark Finance that went bankrupt during that time. Talk to us a bit about your experience during the Great Recession and how you're comparing that experience to what you're seeing
1: today. It's definitely a little different. When I joined Catmark, uh, I joined in October 2008 after Lehman Brothers had collapsed. And at the time, the overall financial system of the economy was in jeopardy. Lots and lots of single family homes were were in the process of being foreclosed. There were lots of loans made to people who could not afford to pay their mortgages. Obviously, there was an overall economic recession, and the government had to step in and intervene. What we're seeing today is a little bit different in the sense that a lot of this kind of uncertainty or fluctuations in the stock market, as we've seen recently, is due to the increase in interest rates and inflation. As interest rates increase, in theory, it could pull liquidity out of the system, but it's not going to jeopardize the financial system as a whole. It's just going to reallocate that capital. So for instance, someone who is buying Zoom stock and expecting Zoom to go up is now saying, hey, should I buy Zoom stock or should I just put my money in the treasuries and make three and a half percent? I'll be very happy with three and a half percent. I think there could be capital movement. I don't think we're going to have the, ca- the single family problem we had in 2008, where there's a tremendous undersupply of single family housing. In addition, most single family mortgages are fixed rate loans. And those homeowners aren't going to be impacted by the increase in rates that we're seeing today. On the more commercial side of things. Yeah, on the commercial side, there's still liquidity in the system. And back in my Catmark days, you could not get a loan. Today you can still get a loan. Now the interest rate's higher. But the question, the, the real overall question is how long will interest rates be higher? And is this the new normal? So people got used to low rates and values definitely went up due to low rates. So the question will be: is this temporary? Is this permanent? And then I think you'll have to wait to see how values readjust. Our focus is on multifamily real estate specifically. And the case for multifamily is very strong in terms of retro demographics and demand, you know, from a national perspective. The the 2020s are set to be the decade for multifamily because you have two of the largest demographic populations: the millennials and the Gen Z population, both becoming renters in this decade. And so, demand throughout the decade, at least in high demand markets, should be consistent. And as wages increase, if wages do increase with inflation, the rents, in theory, should should come along with those wages. And in theory. Coming out of this or in the future when the market kind of stabilizes, values will be higher. Now in the interim, they may be lower, but you look three, four, five years out from now, I think they will continue to revenues will continue to grow.
2: Back then you were just out of school. So I'm guessing you didn't have much experience or capital to start. How did you get started with your real estate investing firm in the depths of the Great Recession?
1: Yeah, so I had had very little experience and very little money of any I had no money. I was fortunate to have this kind of knowledge of how to finance apartment communities. That was kind of the skill set that I had learned at CapMark, And I ended up getting laid off in June of 2009. CapMark went bankrupt. And a fortunate thing for me, at least, everyone in the office got a job at a competing uh, mortgage banking firm. And I was the youngest guy. And they said, Eric, you're not a very good analyst. We're going to let you go. I was unemployed. It was a tough time. My dad, had, who's unfortunately passed away, but at the time was also unemployed. He got laid off after working for a company for over twenty years, and I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I figured that this was the time to do something. I didn't know much about real estate finance at the time. I had a friend who was also unemployed who tried to partner with me, and we we'll started looking at projects together. We found a piece of property that we took to an investor. The investor declined to do it. And my friend went to go build senior housing. And so I was on my own again. And then I started looking at small apartment communities, like eight units, 10 units. And I was having trouble making the numbers work now that I had learned you know, how to get what my target should be on cash flow and things like that. And I was very fortunate that while I was doing that, I had reached out to someone I tried to get a job with when I was in college that acquired about 7,000 units from 2004 to 2007. And was having a lot of difficulty uh, in 2009, and we met up and I told him that I was going to go on my own, that I was going to start my own company, and he said that I should really focus on larger properties because that's where the distress is and that's where the non recourse loans are. And I said I don't have any money, and he said well, if you could raise a half a million dollars, I think you could buy a 200 unit property. At that time, I kind of shifted my focus to look at larger properties. One, because not just because of the, the size, but you have more opportunity with scale. You know, values go up, there's a lot more opportunity. And then secondly, the operations are easier because you can hire a third party. You don't have to be as involved as you do on a small property where you're really the one who's signing, you know, responding to rental requests and maintenance, things like that. So I ended up focusing on large scale multifamily, toured a lot of properties, uh, didn't have a lot of success, had a lot of pitfalls along the way. And then after about six or seven more months, I got a call back on an offer that I made uh, for a property in Baytown. It was a foreclosure. Wells Fargo was the lender. The loan was, I think, $3.6 million. The property had sold previously at maybe five point six million. And I offered $1.35 million dollars. It was a low offer, but there was no financing contingency. I learned along the way about making offers and the kind of the touch points for for a seller. And so, financing contingency is always going to be a touch point for a seller. And so, I didn't offer one, but I gave myself six months to close. They took another offer. They, they couldn't get financing, and uh, they called me back. Uh, for about a month, and said we'll take your offer. And one of the mistakes that ended up working nicely for me is that I said, "Well, it's been a month, and the new price is one point two million that I'd offer," and they took it. And uh, that was the start of my real estate career. It was a hundred fifty-eight unit property in Baytown, Texas, and I was fortunate; I was able to get a loan to buy it from Frost Bank. There's a, a well-known bank in Texas, and a friend of mine was a banker there who got me the loan for about nine hundred fifty-five thousand dollars did a rehab and so raised another half a million dollars. I got a loan from my grandparents for $100,000 and then raised the rest. And that was the first deal I ever did. It was about 50% occupied, but it turned out to be a great deal. And the only deal I've ever done where the cash on cash in the first year was 100% operating the property. We were able to distribute back that half a million dollars through cash flow. So it was a very, very good deal. How did you raise that capital?
2: Not only you know with your experience, but also just given the times that it was? Just
1: went around and talked to people. Friends, parents, you know, I'm Jewish. And so I went to shul and talked to people at shul. You know, just went around and, and kind of explained what I was doing, why I was doing it, where I saw an opportunity. And it was kind of, I don't want to say it was a no-brainer. Looking back, it was a no-brainer. But people trusted me. You can't tell on the Zoom call. I'm six foot seven. And I've always come across, it, I guess, as a trustworthy person. I'm ethical. I, I hold my reputation very very highly and like take a lot of responsibility for actions around me. I think that people saw that and I said, "Look, if we're going to trust anybody, we'll trust Eric." And so it wasn't a lot of people, but uh, I didn't need a lot of money. We only needed four hundred thousand dollars.
2: And what did you end up doing with that deal? How long did you hold it? Did you sell it? Do you own it today? What does that look like?
1: I sold it after three years. I thought I was getting an amazing. You know, we ran it for maybe eight thousand a door or something. I sold it for thirty six thousand a door. I thought it was like this, the home run of the century at least, I don't know what it's worth today with rates moving, but at least six months ago, it was probably worth 100000 a door. So I don't know if that was the right move, but as I was growing and and kind of evolving, we did a lot of distressed uh, acquisitions and rehabs in say from 2010 to 2013. And then uh, late 2013, transitioned to kind of class B properties, higher end, slightly higher end demographic, much better locations, nicer properties. And, uh, the first big class B property I bought was an 810 unit property in Houston. And I needed to, it was $18 million of equity. My biggest equity raise prior to that was about $3 million. And I was speaking to an investor, a mentor of mine. And he said, well, I think you could do it, but you'd have to invest 10% of the equity yourself. And so in order to get that 10%, I had to sell this property. And so I sold it. And, um, was able to... It's kind of an amazing story where the timing wasn't great. I had to go hard on my earnest money prior to go, this. the buyer of this Baytown property going hard on their earnest money. And I needed the money to buy the next deal, but uh, it all worked out for the best. Thank God.
2: Yeah. I often ask people if they regret selling some of their properties. And it's interesting because those properties a lot of times went on to do really well, but then they say, well, you know, that property has done well, but what about what I did with that money? And so it sounds like that deal probably would have been great for you if you held it for a while, but it's not necessarily, that's not the right way to look at it. It's what did you sell or what did you get? What money did you get from that? And what did you turn that into? Is kind of the better way to look at it, like you said.
1: I think so. It, it, the property, the, the first property in Baytown, even though the, the value has gone up, it's not special real estate. It's, there's nothing, it's not a relocation. Not, it's, there's nothing special about it. And so what we're trying to find is kind of unique real estate that stands the test of time. And the property that we bought you know, is a property we could... I mean, we're the third owner of it. It's built in the 70s. We're the third owner ever of it. But we've owned it for 10 years now. We could continue owning it for another 10 years. It's a great property. It fits the demand very well. Reds continue to grow there. It's been a great investment. With scale, you get higher returns. You know, if you look at that project, my the multiple is not going to be, we didn't, we're not going to 6X the price. I mean, we paid 60,000 a unit for that apartment community. And today it's probably worth, three months ago it was worth 150,000 a unit. Today, maybe 120,000 a unit. But when you take that increase and you multiply it by 810 units, it's a lot bigger number than when you take the increase on 158 units, if that makes sense.
2: Part of the reason that people are a bit concerned about the real estate markets right now are because of rising interest rates and inflation. Talk to us a bit about what you're seeing in the debt markets and your thoughts on rising interest rates overall.
1: One thought is, you know, there, there's a portion of loans out there that are fixed rate loans. And if you like we have a loan that's 2.6% that matures in 2030, that's fine. Like you don't have to worry about that. That's not going to go anywhere. Where you do have some concern on refinances are where you either have a, an adjustable rate mortgage and your cap, right? So when you get an adjustable rate mortgage, you can cap the rate either at a fixed amount like 2% or two two 2.5% or 3%, now maybe even higher, or you can cap it on the yield curve, which is typically how we've done it with uh, different tools and whatnot. Those caps are, are going to expire. You know, Two years from now, I think our first cap starts to expire. Well, it depends what rates will be then, because we will have to refinance. And when you refinance at a much higher interest rate, you may not, it, unless you can get that revenue growth to offset it, you may not get the same valuation and have trouble refinancing. So, I think there's an area of concern there, or a potential concern in the future. Right now, I'll tell you because of where interest rates are, we're solving to a higher return in place than we would have been with lower rates. Just today, we were looking at a property, we had an investment committee on a property in Dallas, and the return on cost was, say, 4.2% in year two. And I made the case that it can't be 4.2%, it needs to be about 5.2%. And so we need to adjust our price downwards, about $15 million, which is roughly, say, 12 or 13% of the purchase price to get to a point where if we are stuck or if we've remained with these kind of higher interest rates, that uh, we'll be happy with that investment. I do think that values in the short term at least will come down.
2: And are you saying the return on cost has to be 5.2% because you're expecting, or you need that to be higher than the interest rate you're getting on your debt?
1: Well, we want it to be higher. Yes, correct. There's some room for catch up, right? Because you know, it's not a snapshot in time. We are buying properties that we think will have continued rent growth and make up for that increasing rate, but we want to path towards being above the interest rate for sure. Apartments are a good vehicle for inflation because you can adjust the rents. The rents are adjusted on the lease renewals, which typically are 12 months. And you're adjusting rents weekly. I mean, some more some rents adjust daily, depending on demand and whatnot. And so you do have a little bit more ability in apartment. You have a lot more ability in apartments to adjust rents than you do in, say, a retail center, office building, or an industrial park. Where typically those leases are much longer term, and you're stuck. I mean, you know, if you're if you're getting two percent bumps on your renewal with your office lease, and inflation causes a six percent cost increase, it is what it is. You're going to be behind.
2: Yeah, your margins are getting squeezed for sure. Sounds like you're you're still buying buying deals. What kind of changes are you making? Whether it be in terms of actions, like what are you changing on your actions, or maybe just philosophy towards your investment approach right now, given the
1: market that we're in. I wouldn't say that we're changing our philosophy. Our philosophy has consistently been to buy, build apartment communities that that stand the test of time and improve the communities that they serve. You know, we're looking for those kind of properties. In terms of valuing them, there's a, a, a term that I, I use called positive leverage. Typically, or at least in the past five years, when you buy an apartment and the cap rate is say three and a half percent and you finance it at 2.8%, you have positive leverage, right? There's a spread between your debt cost and your in-place return. Well, now that interest rates have risen so quickly, you have negative leverage. Your cap rate is say 4.2, and your debt cost is 5.6. That's a problem. That's not healthy. Unless you have this kind of a value add plan or a lease up plan to stabilize the property to get you closer to your debt costs, you're going to be behind the curve for quite some time. And your cash on cash is going to be impacted by that. We are buying a property now in San Antonio. It's a very, very well located property. And there is positive leverage, it's a low cap rate, uh, say close to 3.7%. But the debt is a loan assumption. So the debt is fixed at 3.2% for 35 years. We look at that as somewhat irreplaceable real estate and the ability to get positive leverage going in, amortize the debt, and provide cash flow. And I'll tell you today, we're looking at this property in Dallas. And I said to our team, the cash on cash is lower than the property we're buying in San Antonio. And the property in San Antonio is amortizing the loan. It's not interest only. So that's part of the other reason why we kind of made the decision that we have to really drop the price because you know, if you're not going to amortize the loan on top of it, you need to get a higher cash on cash number when it's interest only.
2: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married, and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H M O N E Y dot slash M I for your extended thirty day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash M I for an extended thirty day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like Chat GPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions. Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit meka.com. That's m e y k a.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
2: All right, back to the show. We talked a bit about the acquisitions. I want to talk a bit about disposition. What is your disposition strategy? How do you decide if a property in your portfolio should be disposed of?
1: We spend a lot of time, uh, we have a lot of tools to focus on data metrics, things like job growth, population growth. You know, who the tenants are, who, who, the, who the prospects are in terms of their education, upper mobility, rent to, rent, to, rent to income ratio, things like that. And we sell properties when they don't fit. We don't see the future for them being totally different than the present. Sometimes it's when the values are maximized. But in general, we do want to retain properties that are going to improve over time and that are in what we consider not irreplaceable locations, but very, very strong locations with barriers to entry. Which is hard in Texas, I will tell you, development is very rampant. So it's definitely a hard place to find barriers to entry. We also look at kind of upcoming CapEx. You know, we're selling, we sold a couple of properties last year, we're selling two properties right now. And on the two we're selling now, the CapEx needs have been substantial. I think people don't often realize that with older properties that, you know, the the the, the fundamentals of the property, the plumbing, the foundations, uh, the gas lines. They start to break the roofs and, and they take a lot of capital to maintain them. Those kind of properties where we say, look, we don't want to put in the additional capital, we'll let someone else take on that. That's we decide to sell it. Would you
2: not get the return on the sale price if you were to undertake those projects? We don't necessarily think so. And that's obviously why you're selling them and let somebody else kind of take yeah. the. One of the bullet points in your pitch to come on the show that stood out to me is where you said that there is value in investing in top frothy markets. I don't usually hear value and frothy markets in the same sentence. And most investors I talk to are looking for deals and bargains outside of the most expensive US markets. Explain to us what you mean by there being value in investing in top frothy markets and also how you identify that value.
1: So I think the term frothy markets is, we look at it as a job growth market. The Austins of the world, the DFWs of the world, where there's corporate relocations, where there's tremendous job growth. Our focus is on kind of a specific renter profile. And our general belief is that the return, the investment, the collateral that you're investing in with a multifamily community is tied to the renter that you're renting to. So for instance, uh, we own a property in Austin. I think 20% 20% of the people working, Facebook, or something like that. Google, there's all the tech companies out there. And that return should, in theory, be lower than if the majority of our property worked at Walmart. Not to say that Walmart's not great, but just to say it's a different renter with a different potential upside for future income growth. We look at markets, obviously, there's a supply demand factor to it, but we look at these markets as great places to invest because you're going to ride the upward mobility of that demographic. The second thing that we focus on is the liquidity of the market. A property in Austin can be sold. property in DW can be sold. You may not like the price, but it can always be sold. When you go into secondary tertiary markets, those markets, and the reason you, it can always be sold is because the capital buying those properties is institutional, it's pension funds. They always are buying and they always have more capital for multifamily, especially the kind of multifamily that we're doing, the class A kind of well located stuff. As you go to secondary, tertiary markets, there's not as many buyers for that product, which is why the returns are slightly higher. Secondly, it's a market that's driven by very few corporate, very few employers. So if there's something that happens to one of those employers, it can have a tremendous impact on that market in a positive or negative way. And then the other thing to think about is that the capital flow into those markets is from individual investors. If a situation like right now happens and the treasuries go up and people need to go buy multifamily to get cash flow, well, then there may not be that many investors that want to go to those tertiary or secondary markets or even lenders that want to lend in those markets. And the values there can collapse. And we've seen it collapse in my career. Whereas the values kind of in major markets and good locations, you're always going to be financeable and there's always demand.
2: What do you think are the top three, what you call frothy markets that you see in the US today?
1: You know, look, Austin's still an incredibly frothy market in terms of values. It's cooling off now, I would say, with the rise in interest rates and the impact of these tech firms kind of values kind of declining but still very expensive um, on an in-place basis as it relates to you know, other markets. I mean, look, the historical frothy markets are always going to be the San Franciscos of the world, LA, San Diego, New York, anywhere where it's hard to build. You know, Boston, you know, these markets are trading at very, very low cap rates. And the reason that they always trade at very low cap rates is because just, it's impossible to build. It'll take you a decade to get an apartment property entitled and lots and lots of investment up front. Those properties traded a low, a low cap rate, uh, probably the lowest in the country, because of those barriers to entry. Now, it's more of a political question: is that is that right or wrong? In Texas, you can kind of build what you want; it's very easy to build. But it's created a lot more housing. It's created a lot more affordable, kind of rentable market, housing, market rate housing. But when you go into those markets, um, there's not they don't have that they're tremendously, tremendously undersupplied in housing, which causes rents to rise. But it's not organic. It's kind of this manufactured market. It depends how you think about that. Also, those markets often have low property taxes. And as you look at a, an income state, like in Texas, we have high property taxes. And so I'd say somewhere between 20 to 30% of your expenses could be in property taxes. Whereas in California, it might be uh, the valuations could be much higher because the property taxes. Now the risk in that is that they changed, they passed a bill, which they've tried to pass in the past to increase commercial property taxes and bring them up to kind of more modern day times, which would impact the value significantly in those markets, which is why they haven't been able to pass it.
2: I tend to be out of luck, I guess. I've been involved with a lot of states that have high property taxes. I live in New Hampshire, we have very high property tax. I invest out of state in Texas. And all of my properties have very high property tax. I'm like, man, what is with me and going to these high property tax markets? But yeah, Texas is definitely, definitely up there for taxes. Do you sacrifice some return on your properties because of these markets that you're going into for maybe a little bit ease of management, quality of tenants, kind of headaches, things like that? Are you making a trade off there?
1: I don't know if I call it sacrifice of return. I call it different levels of risk. We've done everything. We've bought stress, we've done tons of value add, we value added like 6,000 5, 5, 6, units. We've done a lot of that. And there's always risk of execution. You know, we don't use a lot of leverage. And to enhance returns, people do use a lot of leverage. And so I don't think it's a, an ease or I think it's it's we're trying to find the best opportunities for us for long-term appreciation. We're not trying to maximize a value for over a two-year period or three-year period. Some people like to do that. And you can get high IRR numbers, and, as you mentioned, you pay a lot of taxes. But you know, I think the, best, the beauty of real estate is consistent cash flow over time. And that's been our focus, is to own well-located properties that cash flow over time. And I think over a long duration, you'll see that the returns kind of average out.
2: When you say you're not using a lot of leverage, give me a ballpark of what that looks like. Are you 60% loan to value, 70%, 50%? What does that look like?
1: So the property we're buying now in San Antonio is 48%. We'll use up to 70%. It depends on the project, right? So we'll use more leverage when there's more, there's a story to increase the revenue quickly. So, you know, for instance, we use 70% leverage on a property we bought last year that was 50% occupied. It was in lease up. So there's a case to be made that, look, you're not going to get the full value today, but there's a case to be made that within six months, Basically, I think even before six months, it was 100% occupied. And you can go and start to look for refinance options. And so in those kind of situations, we'll use a little higher leverage, but typically it's probably between 65 and 55 in that range.
2: Your initial outreach email also said that you have an ability to find value in properties when others may not see it, which offers the company an advantage in a competitive industry. How do you find value in properties that other people are missing?
1: I think it's by being a local operator. So we're vertically integrated. We have property management in-house. We're in DFW, San Antonio, Houston, moving into Austin, also uh, taking over property management there in the future. And by having eyes and ears on the ground, uh, team members always in those markets, we can really invest in the process before we make an offer. So really understand the rent comps, really understand the demand for that property, there's sometimes also repositioning uh, that others just don't see. You know, we bought a property in downtown San Antonio years ago that was had very, very low rents. Uh, it was a market rate deal, but the rents were very low. It old, it was a old rundown property on, I mean, seven or eight acres in downtown San Antonio. And we looked at it, and we saw that there's the lowest rents in the market. There were two other properties that were built old that were built before 1980. And they were loft apartments renting for about $1,300, $1,400 a month, and ours were renting for $400. And so we were able to come in there, improve the property, and increase the rents very substantially, meet the demand. And I don't think a lot of people saw that.
2: Um, also back uh, in, you mentioned you're doing class A properties now. Yeah. That transition happened back in 2018. You guys were doing C-class properties back then. First, for those listening who aren't familiar with the different class cool. types, break down the different classes of properties, and then explain to us why you made this transition.
1: A Class A property is a, a new property, a high-quality building, and a great market, great location. There's good amenities, there's a strong renter demographic. Typically, that renter is paying somewhere between 15 to 25% of their income. They're college-educated, working probably corporate America or property mobile job. A Class B property is a little older, maybe built in the early 2000s or 90s, late 80s, Typically, these are seen as value-add investments where people are going to modernize those properties through renovations and kind of close that gap between the B and A and B properties. And in Class C properties, those are at least 20, 30 years old. They have more, sorry, excuse me, maybe 40, 50 years old. They have more kind of structural issues, right? So they may not have washer dryer connections. Um, The ceilings might be eight feet instead of 10 feet. The renter's blue collar, not college educated, probably paying 30 to 40% of their income rent. And so we decided in 2018, I decided personally that I was not the best acquisition person. Not that I wasn't good at it, but there were people out there that were better than me. And I brought on uh, Susan Pohl, who's our head of acquisitions. She's acquired 35,000 units in her career. She's very well known in the brokerage communities she's very sophisticated. And, and, but in that process, we looked at our portfolio and we saw that we were over-concentrated in Class A properties, especially in Houston. And her advice was to diversify and focus on these Class A properties. And we really looked at what our properties were worth at the time, which we were selling properties in the low three cap range, and uh, what we could buy properties for at that moment. And so that's when we made the transition to the Class A business.
2: Did you decide to sell off all those Class C properties and just go to Class A, or did you keep them to, for that diversification piece?
1: So we just sold off all the Class C, except for the one I mentioned in downtown San Antonio, which eventually will be torn down and redeveloped, either by us or by someone else.
2: How are you managing the properties? Do you have a property management company that you outsource it to? Have you started your own property management company that's kind of a separate entity? Do you do it within your own firm? How, what does that look like?
1: So we manage our own properties. Uh, started the, company, started the property management in-house two years ago. It was a very rough ride learning the business and finding strong team members. It's definitely the hardest thing, I think, in our business is finding good people. And we've we've gotten a lot better at it. Today we manage the vast majority of our properties. There's a couple that we still don't, but the vast majority we do. We have a, a very, very strong team. We have a great head of construction, we have a great head of property management. COO who kind of oversees that business, marketing department. So we have built a very robust team to manage our own properties at a very high level. And I think we'll continue to manage our own properties at a very high level. Part of the reason or the motivation was because we want to be able to touch the resident. We want to be able to impact the resident. And we do that through screening. So we do that through screening our own people, making sure that we're hiring good people, making sure that they're trained and giving the best service that they can create the best living experience for our residents. That's the goal. and It's hard to get that result with a third-party property management firm.
2: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor Yahoo Finance is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com mi, netsuite.com mi. That's
2: netsuite.com mi. All right, back to the show. Given that you're in class A now, does that change how you feel about the current condition? I've heard kind of different opinions on whether people want to be in class A during kind of recessionary times, or if people would prefer to be in maybe a class B and class C. I've, I've heard both arguments. So I'm curious to hear if you would prefer to be in the class that you're in now or in a little bit lower class when it came to kind of the environment that we're in now.
1: We would absolutely love to rather be in class A. That's part of the reason why we got in class A. In the first place, uh, if you think about it, the ongoing capital needs are are more predictable. I would say. Secondly, the demographic though, of our renter is paying some properties below ten percent, but ten to fifteen percent typically of their income in rent. They're also working in upperly mobile positions. Like even we saw during COVID, that's a good example. Is you know in the Class C apartments, people got laid off and they couldn't pay their rent. In the Class A apartments, people got laid off. They continued to pay their rent and they got another job. I think that this is the rising rates, something that's going to impact all real estate or all assets with leverage. And as I mentioned before, our, our belief is that the, the collateral on a apartment community is the renter profile. And so we, we would want to invest in the highest quality renter profile we can find.
2: What I hear as the argument kind of for the other side is kind of this class compression where basically people in class A might not be able to afford the class A anymore in a recessionary time. They'll go to class B, class B will go to C and so on and so forth. And that kind of leaves class A with a much smaller pool of people who can actually afford that level of quality and that type of property. Do you see it differently than that?
1: Yes, I see it differently because the class A people can always just lower their rent and class people can always just lower their rent. So I think that those properties will stay more full than a Class C property will. So like when I was starting my career, the Class A properties were not 50 or 60% occupied. The Class C properties were. And the reason they were was because the renters just left. They left. They weren't there. They either moved in with their relatives, they doubled up, they moved, or, or maybe they went to the Class B properties because the Class B properties lowered their rents. I kind of see it absolutely, absolutely the opposite. But that's why I do what I do. And that's probably why someone does what
2: they do. Yeah. I, I don't think there's a right or wrong. I think that I like to bring the different perspectives to everybody listening to the show. One week I'll have a guest on that says one thing, then the next week I'll bring a guest on that says something completely opposite. And that's not to, I tell the listeners all the time, it's not to confuse people. It's so that you can hear both sides of the argument and then decide whatever makes most sense to you. One of the kind of strategies is going to speak to you more, and then you can kind of go do it with your own portfolio as you wish. So I like to hear both perspectives for sure.
1: I think, and that's a great way to host and absolutely to share because real estate is a broad, a broad business, and there's not a one one way to do things. There's a lot of ways to be successful in this space.
2: Now, one of the other most common pieces of advice that experienced real estate investors give new investors is to not use any of your money, none of your own money, at least, or as little as possible by leveraging OPM or other people's money. And I know you personally invest significantly in many of your deals at Barvin. Walk us through your thought process there.
1: I believe you know, that we, we raise capital from high net worth investors, RIAs, family in the offices. that want to see that skin in the game. I've been fortunate from when I started my career to have built a lot of wealth and have the liquidity to continue to invest at a very meaningful level, somewhere between, usually it's between a million, $4 million per project. It gives comfort to our investors. And I like the cash flow and I like the depreciation and I like the exposure to the investments. We wouldn't be making them if we don't like them. And so I've always looked at our business as an extension of my own portfolio. The idea that yes, I have enough wealth to maybe buy one large apartment complex myself or community myself, but I can't buy 10. If I can bring investors to come along with me. Then I can kind of grow and take take advantage of the opportunity in front of us, as opposed to kind of putting all of my assets in a single building. That's part of my rationale. We do use other people's money. I mean, we do have a lot of investors. Our structure, like I mentioned, is kind of project by project. So investors decide when they want to invest. But it's something they've always looked for in, in our deals. And I think if I did, I've never sent them a project that we weren't putting a very meaningful amount of money into. But I would be, I'm sure we get a lot of questions. It's often the first question we get uh, when speaking with investors is, is how much am I actually putting
2: in? And how do you think? I'm sure you don't put all your liquid capital into the deals, but how do you think about diversification from your own investments? I mean, you have this firm, you're investing in the deals, you probably get, I don't know your exact situation, but I'm sure you get probably a salary from it. You have a lot of things tied to this kind of one business. How do you think about diversification with your own capital and while still satisfying kind of that requirement of investors to put your
1: own capital into? Our uh, business takes a lot of liquidity. You need liquidity to take down land for development sites. You need liquidity for uh, pre development costs. You need liquidity for guarantees on loans, uh, co investments. My wealth, or my focus is really in cash and real estate. You know, when the real estate goes down, I use my cash to buy more real estate. That's kind of the simple I have invested in the past in uh, venture capital. I have a, one venture capital investment. I have a good friend of mine who's doing a climate venture fund. I've done crypto in the past. I've, I've kind of dabbled in these very different kind of things, but meaningful amounts of money are kept in cash and real estate. Part of
2: your business model with Barvin is a direct investment structure. And you say that it adds 200 basis points in alpha relative to other capital allocators. Talk to us a bit more about what the direct investment structure is, how it works, and how it's different from other real estate funds.
1: Yes. So so the first thing is that we're not a fund. We are deal by deal, project by project. And when we get an opportunity, like I mentioned, the San Antonio opportunity, we'll put together an offering memorandum. We'll put together a webinar. We have a database of people who've expressed an interest in seeing our projects. And we have obviously in that database, a subset that is invested in our projects. We've got a lot of existing repeat investors. The vast majority are repeat investors. And we will send that... Webinar along with the offering memorandum out to the first uh, repeat investors for about 72 hours. And then after that, we'll send it to the entire database. And so by doing that, we eliminate the allocator fees and promotes. People who invest in our projects are investing direct, directly in a specific asset, and their ownership is tied to that asset. The most common way, or the traditional way for a high net worth investor. To invest in real estate at our scale, institutional, high quality, multifamily, is typically through their financial advisor. So their financial advisors taking their money, they're putting them into a private REIT, they're putting them into a private equity fund, and there's a lot of fees in that process, and it really waters down the return. We did a study with a real estate consulting company, RCO. Comparing our fee structure to the capital allocator fee structure, where the individual gives their money to the financial advisor, who gives their money to the private equity fund, the private equity fund finds a group like ours to do the deal, and the group that's doing the deal has fees and promote structure. The private equity fund has a fee and a promote structure. The financial advisor has a commission. You know, there's about a, at least a 200 basis point spread on the net return. You know, I was at a conference in Los Angeles, and one of the speakers is a big value-add apartment uh, person. And he was saying that to get an 11 to an investor, their gross return has to be about a 14 and a half. And I'll tell you, for us to get an 11, uh, our gross return has to be like 11.75. It's a much, much, much tighter fee structure. And a better promote from the investors. And that's part of the idea. It's like we're putting investors in high quality real estate in great locations without having to take the risk to get the exact same return that they're going to get in much more risky assets.
2: Yeah, when you break it down with those middlemen, I mean, I think it's pretty clear to see that that structure has major flaws.
1: That's how the vast majority of real estate is done.
2: Interesting. A lot of the people I feel like I talk to are kind of more similar to your structure, just given kind of what I do here on the podcast, but I can definitely see the the financial advisor approach as well. What do you guys require for a minimum investment on your deals?
1: Our typical minimum investment is $100,000. Uh, you have to be a high net worth accredited investor. And um, that's it. We want alignment. We want to have a call, make sure that you understand the project, make sure that you're aligned with the time frame for the whole period. As I mentioned, a lot of our projects are longer term. We want to make sure that someone doesn't need the money back within you know, the duration of the hold period. But if they do, we can always get them out. That hasn't been a problem in the past. There's been very few that need to get out, but when they do, we get them out. It's not a problem.
2: What do you generally set your hold period as? Seven to 10 years. Okay. So that's what I hear is pretty standard. I'm seeing five to seven, seven to 10 is pretty common from people that I speak with. I'm curious now, given where we are, when it comes to business and real estate investing, what keeps you awake at night?
1: I have four kids. A lot keeps me actually awake at night. I think understanding the macro economy is where I spend a lot of time. Understanding how rates impact values, understanding how financing options can change, understanding locations improving or declining. I don't know if you saw yesterday, Caterpillar said that they're going to relocate their headquarters to Dallas, and that's a major boom for job creation in Dallas. i say that my worry, one of my biggest worries is kind of what we were seeing now. I've owned this one property I mentioned earlier, the 810-unit property, for uh, since 2013. And we, the loan matures in November 2013. And we signed a fixed-rate loan at the wrong time. We, our rate is like 5.5%. And I've been you know, kind of watching all these 2.5% loans, 3% loans go by saying, oh, I missed my opportunity. My biggest risk, my biggest concern is waking up in 2023 and the rates being 5 or 6 or 7%. And so that seems to be happening. I mean, unfortunately, we have a very low leverage loan there. That's not a problem. But it, it, look, it's not a great thing for real estate values and for cash distributions. But the market will stabilize a little bit. Um, once we kind of get through this period. And personally, I do think the rates will start to come back down. The long-term, if the goal of the Fed is to have 2% inflation, then the long-term rate should be around 3%. Now, if they change their goal, they say the goal is 3% inflation, then maybe it's 4%. You know, just getting an understanding of where their, their goals are for the long-term inflation rates, I think will correlate a little bit to you know, kind of understanding where debt is. And that's probably what worries me most.
2: Why couldn't you refinance that debt between 2013 and now? Did it have a uh, yeah, prepayment so penalty?
1: Prepayment penalty, yeah, loan defeasance. So basically, the way a fixed rate loan works is that you're fixing that rate at a certain percentage. So let's say five percent as an example, and that five percent rate is going to be your rate whether rates go up or go down. If you want to get out of that loan, then you have to replace that five percent return that those those borrowers or the lenders were, were giving. We're, were getting. If treasuries are whatever, 60 basis points, 70 basis points, well, it's going to take a lot of treasuries. to be very expensive to get out of that loan, if that makes sense. And so it was a a number that was in the the five plus million dollar range for the prepayment penalty. And for better or worse, we decided not to do it.
2: So it was just kind of a a piece of that loan, because you could get a a similar loan like that just without the prepayment penalty, and then you would have been able to refinance out later with no issues.
1: Correct. So we could have gotten a short. We could have gotten a shorter term loan. We would have had a maturity, you know, instead of in ten years, at three years, or five years, or seven years, or a floating rate loan. After the first year, is typically prepayable at one percent, but then your 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 loan is floating, and so when something like this occurs, your rate is going to increase, it, unless you have a cap and depending on where that cap is, you know, it's a. Uh, there's a lot of benefits to floating rate debt this is obviously not the best time for it, but there are a lot of benefits to floating rate debt because of that prepayment flexibility. And in my career in the business now for 13 years, we've paid probably at least $5 million, maybe more collectively in prepayment penalties when we sell properties. Fixed rate loans have costs as well uh, if you want to get out early.
2: What has been the most valuable piece of advice you've ever received? It could be about business or life.
1: I think the most valuable piece of advice in business is patience. There's so many, there's so much desire to grow. Personnel wise, real estate-wise, just in general, there's a potential people who will always want to grow. And our focus has always been slowing down a little bit and getting better and investing in not just the physical growth of assets, but also the, the growth of individuals and team members and making sure that we're doing things the right way that we're doing things in a repeatable fashion in a scalable fashion i would say you know also on the deal front patience is very important there's got to be six or seven maybe maybe even 10 deals 10 properties where we were not the biggest we were not the highest offer we did not get awarded the property and another something happened another offer fell out of contract they couldn't close there was an issue with the psa it came back to us and we ended up buying it it's just about having... It's a combination of patience and conviction. Conviction in your, your understanding of value, conviction of your, in your uh, thought process, and the patience to not kind of just go to where the market is to say, okay, well, the broker says I need to be here. I'm going to be here. It's, stay where you're at and you can come back. Those are my two things.
2: As we wrap up the show, I want to give a chance for you, Eric, to tell the audience where the best place is to find you, learn a bit more about what you're doing, and, and connect with you.
1: I uh, appreciate that, Robert. So our website's barvin.com. It's my last name. Uh, you can definitely see what we're doing in terms of acquisitions, development, property management, who are, who's on our team. You can also um, go to the website invest.barvin.com if you want to learn more about investing with us, or you can email investors uh, with an S at barvin.com. And we can set up a call either with myself or our head of IRK town to talk to you about what we do. And gets you on our list. And, and like I said before, the beauty of our model is that we we are adding people to our database. And so if people want to be in our database, we're more than happy to have them. They're going to see our deal flow. And there's never pressure on our end for investors to participate. We don't we don't pressure investors to invest with us. We act we actually are oversubscribed consistently. The deals that we do, the average equity check is probably $30 million per project. And you know, the last deal we did, we raised the capital in six days. The deal before that was like a week and a half. We can raise large amounts of capital very quickly from repeat investors. And we, we see this as an opportunity for those to participate in great projects. And and one final kind of tidbit that I'll, why we haven't changed this, that I'll kind of just share my dad passed away in 2016. He was very sick. And I have a cousin who's in Dallas, who's a big doctor. that didn't necessarily relate to what my dad's illness was, but anyway, he's a big doctor. And as soon as my dad was sick, he heard through the grapevine and he flew down to Houston for like three days. And he was with my dad, he was talking to the doctors and he was incredibly helpful in understanding the illness. And I said to him, I don't know how I'm ever going to repay you. I mean, this has been amazing. No one out of my family, my immediate family has any medical experience. And so we were very grateful to have him there. And he said, Eric, you've allowed me to invest in your projects. You've made me so much money investing in multifamily real estate. I would have never had this opportunity or known about these projects if it wasn't for you. And so... I kind of took that to heart. Like, There's so many people out there that are just going through their financial advisor or are just going through what someone else tells them to do. And we want to give this opportunity to more individuals that have the, have the interest in doing it. Because I think just like it's created long-term wealth for myself, I think it, it will create long-term wealth for them as well.
2: Well, Eric, I'm sorry to hear about your father, but I appreciate you taking your time to join me here on the show. And I'll be sure to put links to all your different resources in the show notes below for anybody that's interested in checking them out and connecting with you. Eric, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Robert. really appreciate
2: you having me on today. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week.
0: Thank you for listening to TIP.